Okay, today's first Bible reading is from Proverbs 20, um, verse 1, and that's found on page 527 of the Church Bibles. It says, Wine is a mocker, and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Second reading today is from John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and that's found on page 861. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so that they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out, and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Well, thanks, Chris. Friends, uh, good morning. Great to be able to uh, open up God's Word to you. It's worth uh, saying that our... Next five weeks are what we would call a topical sermon series. And so whereas we'd normally dive in and work through one passage uh, in our sermons, over the next five weeks things might be a bit different. Uh, Today's one such day where we're actually going to jump around the Bible to see what the Bible says about drinking alcohol uh, and wine and so on. Um, Every verse other than John 2 is going to be on the screen. So feel free to look it up if you'd like and I'll tell you where it is, but it'll be there if you'd uh, like to uh, have a look at it on the screen. You know, it was about a month ago now that the NRL, the National Rugby League, endured one of their worst public relations weeks in a while. Uh, That's saying a lot because the NRL have quite a few bad publicity weeks. Uh, But the reason for this one was because on five separate occasions during the previous week, individuals associated with the NRL were caught either taking or possessing cocaine. Uh, This included four active players... Uh, and one NRL club CEO. Uh, The media, obviously, went into overdrive with headlines blaring that the game was in crisis, that illicit social drug use was uh, rampant and out of control. Well, one journalist took a different line. Peter Fitzsimmons, the ex-wallaby and ex-heavy drinker, wrote an article that essentially said everyone was barking up the wrong tree. Cocaine was bad and a problem but that there was a much more insidious drug at work inside the NRL and it was a major sponsor. Here's what he said. I mean, do we or do we not every week in the NRL see alcohol-fuelled atrocities that include domestic violence, sexual assault, violent assault, car accidents, verbal abuse, marital and familial breakdown and so on and so forth. And cocaine-fuelled atrocities? Well, there was that time that Actually, no, that was alcohol. Ah, but what about the time that... No, sorry, that was alcohol too. 
Uh, but who can forget when? No, you're right. That was alcohol. Now, this perspective of Peter Fitzsimmons is backed up really by almost any research into the effects of drugs on a culture uh, and the effect of alcohol on a community. So globally, alcohol misuse is the fifth leading risk factor for premature death and disability. However, among people aged 15 to 49, it is the first risk factor for premature death and disability. Uh, in the age group 20 to 39 years, approximately one quarter of all deaths are alcohol attributable. In New South Wales, 45% of all assaults in the year 20, 2007 were alcohol-related, which was more than 33,000 cases. Now, all of these statistics paint a picture, don't they? And they're interesting and probably not that surprising. But they go nowhere close to painting the picture that living with an alcoholic does. If you know an alcoholic, then the closer you are to them, the greater you'll understand the damage and the distress caused by this disease. Some of you here today are alcoholics. Some of you are married or once were married to an alcoholic. Some of you will have grown up with alcoholic parents or perhaps even now, sadly, alcoholic children. And you don't need any statistics at all to realise what a problem alcohol is in our community, in our relationships and in our homes. And in light of the damage done, in light of the injury and the relational cost wrought by alcohol, it is so tempting, isn't it, just to say, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't drink. In the face of such an acceptable drug that harms countless people, is it not right for God's people to actually stand up and say, look, this drug is dangerous, there's a better way to live. It shouldn't be the unconverted journalists telling that to our community, but shouldn't it be us? You don't have to drink. Which is to ask the question, should we say, cheers, big ears, and chug along with our culture? Or should we see alcohol as another way, another frontier, where we can be salt and light in a culture that is bland and in the dark? Well, brothers and sisters, we are God's people, and as such, we sit under God's word. Statistics are interesting, but not definitive for us. Anecdotes are moving, but not authoritative for us. God's word is. So today we're going to see what God's word says about alcohol, drinking, and the glory of God. And here is the first thing you find in the Bible. Alcohol is a real problem, both literally and metaphorically. Now, it's worth saying here that the Bible actually doesn't have a word for alcohol in it, but it does speak about wine and strong drink. No one knows what strong drink is, but it's not wine and it is alcoholic. But here's what you have to keep in mind. Whenever the Bible refers to wine or strong drink, in almost every place it is referring to alcoholic wine and alcoholic strong drink. That is what those words mean. And when you read the Bible, you'll find that wine and strong drink cause problems in many ways. They cause real problems for real people in real relationships. So, in Isaiah 5, uh, we see that alcohol is associated with anger. The prophet says, 
Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. Now, the picture here is being painted of those for whom alcohol is their life. They are always thinking about their next drink. You might know people like that. And they end up inflamed in anger as a result of their drinking by day's end. Proverbs 20, we read that alcohol is linked to a lack of wisdom that damages relationships. Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Uh, alcohol here is described by what it produces. It, it produces people, uh, sorry, it causes people to scorn each other. That's the mocking. Uh, and it leads to violence. That's the brawling. But the Apostle Paul too uh, talks about the great dangers of alcohol. And in Ephesians 5, he talks about how alcohol abuse is linked to a deadening of spiritual wisdom and spiritual insight. He says this, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, what Paul's doing here is he's comparing the Christian life, which he sees it as a life being filled with God's Spirit and a life seeking God's purposes. He compares that to a life being filled with wine, which leads to debauchery. That's best understood as a life of spiritual recklessness and wastefulness. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is clear that alcohol causes real problems for real people in real relationships. But the Bible goes further than this. Because of the literal negative real impacts of alcohol, the, Bible authors, uh, the biblical authors then take that language of wine and drunkenness and use it in metaphoric ways. So, uh, drunkenness is a metaphor in parts of the Bible for the intoxicating influence a society has as it stands against God. So this is from Jeremiah 51. You can find the same in Revelation, actually. Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore they have gone mad. It, drunkenness is being used as a metaphor for something much worse. We also find in Habakkuk chapter 2 that wine is a metaphor for the judgment of God. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You know, that could have been in yesterday's Sydney Morning Herald. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. That is judgment from God. Now here's what we find. When you read the Bible, it is very clear with the warnings and the judgments that there is great danger around alcohol. And when you read it, it's very easy to understand where the Christian abstinence movement found its roots. You know what? It would actually be really easy to stop here and say, look, the danger is so great, the harm so serious, brothers and sisters, don't drink alcohol. And yet, and yet, that's only half a story. Because when you read the Bible, here's what you also find. Alcohol is a great blessing, both literally and metaphorically. So, uh, when you read the Bible, you realize that alcohol is actually a God-given gift that serves many good purposes. Here's the first. Alcohol can be used to honor God's people. So in Genesis, we read this. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. 
So in Genesis 14, a bit of background, Abraham has just defeated four kings who are fighting against some other kings in the Valley of Siddim. And in response to Abraham's victory, now Kizadek, who we're told is a priest of God on high, comes and honours Abraham with bread and wine. We also find that alcohol is used for celebrations. Now, this was the reading we heard today from John 2. We know the story. I'll summarise it for you. Jesus' mother tells Jesus they're out of wine. Jesus instructs the servants to fill up some jars with water. The master of the banquet tries the wine and he's shocked, not because it's rubbish, but because the wine is remarkable. What we see is that wine is absolutely normally used for celebrations. That is normal and appropriate for wine to be drunk at first century weddings. But we also see here that Jesus is the ultimate winemaker up there with Penfold's Grange. See, not only does Jesus approve of wine being drunk in John 2, he provides wine to be drunk. We also see in the scriptures that alcohol is used to bring joy to people. You know that? Psalm 104 says this, God makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains the heart. We see here in, in, in uh, Psalms that wine is a gift from God that can bring delight and make people merry. But more than that, you see, not only is wine and alcohol seen as appropriate for celebrations and for enjoyment literally, but because it is literally, the biblical authors then take that and start to apply wine and alcohol as metaphors for other things positively. Genesis 27, we read here that new wine is a metaphor for blessing from God. May God give you heaven's dew and of earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. Now this is from Genesis where Isaac blesses his son Jacob. Think about this. Uh, grain and new wine were both wrought from the ground. Okay? Wine and grain grew in crops. That speaks of permanence and stability in the land. That's what this blessing is all about. It's peace and stability and blessing in the land. Proverbs 3 says this, uh, Honour the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops, then your barns will be filled to, to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Uh, in Proverbs 3, this is a picture of abundance, that God's people who live God's way will have all that you might require and more pictured by grain and wine. So, to summarise, here's what we've seen so far, okay? In the Bible, alcohol can be a real problem, both literally and metaphorically, and yet alcohol can be a great blessing. We see that both literally and metaphorically. One scholar puts it like this, uh, these two aspects of wine, its uses and abuses, its benefits and its curses, its acceptance in God's sight and its abhorrence, are interwoven into the fabric of the Old Testament. The references in the New Testament are much fewer in number, but once more, the good and the bad aspects are equally apparent. Well, what a useless sermon to date. I mean, we're two-thirds of the way in, and all we've heard is that the Bible says good things and bad things. I mean, how does that help us live? Why doesn't the Bible just say to us, alcohol, bad, stay away, good, drink? Why? <laughs> because God does not like treating his people like two-year-olds. Because God loves us so much that he actually wants us to work out what honouring Jesus in our lives with him at the centre 
looks like. Think about this. Sex in the Bible, a real problem and a wonderful blessing. Family in the Bible, a real problem and a fantastic blessing. Food in the Bible, a real problem and a great blessing. Church in the Bible, a real problem and an amazing blessing. Brothers and sisters, there is a pattern here. I hope you're seeing it. You see, when it comes to gifts that God gives us, be it sex, family, church, education, money, food or alcohol, they can all be real problems for us or great blessings to us. It all depends on how we see them and how we use them. So, how should God's people today think about and approach alcohol? Well, I reckon that as God's people, there's at least three things, and I'll only speak about three things, but three things that we need to be really clear on in our thinking as we work out what drinking looks like for us. And here's the first. Drunkenness in the Bible is sin. Drunkenness in the Bible is sin. So in Romans 13, Paul is encouraging the new church in Rome about how to live in this culture around them, the Roman culture around them, which was a culture of flesh and vice. And he says this on the screen. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies, and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So Paul here sees drunkenness as belonging to the night. That is, for the Apostle Paul, darkness and light, or night and day, are two pictures of two ways to live you see to walk in the light or in the day is to live god's way to walk in the darkness is to follow the ways of the world and it's how people used to walk before they knew god and drunkenness for paul is part of walking in the dark it is behavior that is equated with orgies and jealousy and immorality in essence for paul it is behavior that flows out of our deep unrestrained hungers and lusts. And Paul says, if you belong to the day, then you don't follow your base desires anymore. If you belong to Christ, you clothe yourself in him. You have wrapped yourself in Jesus and how he would have us live. And in the Bible, how Jesus would have us live is always the best way to live. Uh, Let me make one comment at this point. If getting drunk is one area of your life where you know that God does not have complete control, if this is an area of your life where you continue to struggle despite your best attempts to allow God to overrule, then you need to know that James Craig or myself or Jody would be delighted. We'd love nothing more than to be able to sit down and chat and pray with you about that. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, ah, that's not me, could be me but it's not me might be but I don't think it is can I recommend that you ask your spouse if you have one if they think it's you 
Because they will, happen, or they will often have much better insight into your drinking than you will. And if you'd prefer to speak to someone beyond our church, there is an excellent Christian organization which is both confidential and anonymous called Overcomers Outreach who help Christians who struggle with every type of addiction. Uh, we highly recommend this group. Both James and Craig have done work with them in previous ministries and lifetimes. Um, but their contact details are on the screen and I will leave them there just for a moment. Uh, so if you're interested in taking that down for yourself or someone else, then you can do that. Well, the first thing we see, brothers and sisters, uh, as we think about how do we actually deal with alcohol, is that drunkenness, drunkenness in the Bible is a sin. But here's the second thing we need to be clear about as we think about this topic of drinking, and it is this. Freedom, freedom for those who trust in Jesus is absolutely real. You see, Jesus did not die on the cross to enslave us again in some new morality and religiosity. No, those who trust in Jesus are genuinely and absolutely free. Here's how Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 10 on the screen. So if some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, oh, this, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience's sake. The other man's conscience, not yours, I mean. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, a bit of background here will be helpful. The background here is that Paul is speaking about eating meals with people from different religious backgrounds. And, and he's saying, Paul is saying, look, Jesus frees you to eat whatever you want. The view of the day was that unclean foods made you unclean. And Jesus says, no, I've died on the cross, so you'll never be unclean. Eat what you want. My death pays for it all. That's what Jesus teaches. Paul then says, look, if someone at that table is offended that you feel so free that you can eat any food, food that that they themselves wouldn't eat, don't eat it. But notice the reason for not eating it. It's not because it was wrong in and of itself. Paul's saying, rather, by eating it, you'd be causing someone else to have doubts about where you stand with God. Paul's saying, hey, don't do that to someone else. But here's the point he's making here. It's that... As your conscience dictates, as your conscience that is inspired by God's spirit and word dictates, you are free to eat what you want and drink what you want. Which is why Paul then finishes here by saying, so whether, whatever you do, sorry, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We're going to come back to that verse, that final verse, because it's so important. Okay, so Romans 13, Paul speaks about the freedom that those of us who trust in Jesus genuinely have real freedom. But then Romans 14 spells out something very important about that freedom, and it is this, that freedom in the Bible has a particular shape. Okay? Yes, we're free, but that freedom has a shape to it. And this is Romans 14, the chapter straight after. This is what Paul says. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead... Make up in your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, 
you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Then it jumps on to verse 20 there. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. Listen to this. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. Now what's going on here? Here's what's going on. Paul starts with a theological position and then from that he moves to a practical application. Okay? His theological position is the same as chapter 13 that because Jesus died on the cross there's no such thing as unclean food anymore. Eat what you want is his theological conviction. However, Paul knows that that is not everyone's theological conviction. Paul knows there are other people around him in the church at the table whose theology may not be as robust whose theology is not as formed as Paul's. Therefore, Paul says, for the sake of them, for those other Christians who you love and who you want to encourage, then you're not going to eat certain foods in front of them because that will cause them to doubt, struggle, or fall. Let me try to give you an example in our context, okay? Now, what I'm about to say is exactly what I think. This isn't like some story. Uh, this is this is some sorry. This is my my view. My personal theological conviction is that smoking is not inherently sinful. Okay, the shocks keep coming this morning, don't they? Uh, my theological conviction is that smoking is not inherently sinful. It may well be bad for your health. The doctors here certainly know how unwise it is generally. But in and of itself, I don't think smoking is necessarily an active rebellion against our Creator. Now, that is my personal spiritual conviction. But I have absolutely no intention of lighting up on the deck straight after the service. No intention at all. You know, just a quick smoke before I get back to my training for kids' ministry this afternoon. Now, why won't I do that? For a range of reasons. Because uh, I don't smoke by and large. But... Mainly, why on earth would I want to act in a way that causes you to doubt my trust in God, my wisdom and my godliness? Which it absolutely would if we have this service, if I just lit up, you know, I mean, we can test this. If you've got a cracker, come and give it to me. I'll light up. Let's see how it works. What will happen is you'll be thinking, what is going on? You do need to know that that is cultural. You do need to know in Germany they have pipe racks up the back of church where you hang your pipes. You do know that there are parts of Sydney where if you don't smoke, you're actually a bit weird. Okay? So it's, it, it's cultural. But here's the thing. I'm not going to smoke here because I wouldn't want you, because I don't smoke behind large, and because I wouldn't want you to wonder what's going on. Now, here's the thing. You might have a different theological conviction around smoking. Praise the Lord. You might have a different theological conviction to me. You might, your conscience might tell you that it's sin. Praise God. For you it is. My conscience doesn't tell me that. My understanding of the Bible doesn't say that to me. But why would I cause you to stumble? Why would I want you to stumble? I don't. So I won't light up on the deck. So here's the thing. Whilst I am free to eat what I want, drink what I want, and smoke what is legal, (laughs) Romans 14.21 says this. It is better, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine, or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Brothers and sisters, our freedom has a shape, and it is to be used in the encouragement and building up of others in their love and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So let me finish. And I want to finish today with a couple of thoughts that flow from Paul's instruction from 1 Corinthians 10, which said this. I said it before. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory, do it all for the glory of God. What on earth does that mean? How do you eat for the glory of God? How do you drink alcohol or Coke for that matter to the glory of God? Well, I think what Paul's talking about here is the fundamental direction and purpose that Jesus' people have in life. Of your life, if you love Jesus. That in all you do, in all you say, in the way you work, in all you read, in what you blog, in what you watch, in in all you eat and all you drink, you are wrestling with how do I keep Jesus at the center of this? How do I honor and glorify and worship and give thanks to the God who made me and saved me? Can I say that that is a refrain that sings out from the whole Bible, Old Testament and New? And, And I think that is what Paul is referring to when he, when he says that we are to eat and drink to the glory of God. But men, men, when we make jokes about alcohol, which we seem to do for some reason, they're never that funny, but we do it, about what we drank and how much we drank and when we drank, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about when he's talking about drinking to the glory of God. Mums, When you put on Facebook that you cannot wait to get your kids down to sleep because being a mum is so difficult and your kids are so exhausting and that first glass of wine is the first real joy you've had at the end of a hard day, I don't think that's what Paul means when he talks about drinking to the glory of God. When we have guests in our homes, I've done this, this this one's for me. When we have guests in our homes and we host lunches or dinners, and we serve wine or beer without giving any thought to who else is sitting there, their theological background or perhaps their previous struggles with alcohol. I did this. I had eight people at the table. I opened some wine, and a man turned to me and said, how do you not know I'm an alcoholic? It was awkward. When I serve alcohol like that, I don't think I've served alcohol to the glory of God. And when we model to our children that alcohol is an essential part of every gathering celebration, meal or event and that having a beer or a glass of wine is just what mum and dad do because it's what we do I don't think we have considered what we are modelling to our children who watch every move and every drink and I'm not sure in that moment we have parented to the glory of God as the apostle would tell us but when we receive wine and beer and spirits with thanksgiving to God from the hand of a kind and good God, when we recognize that we are free to drink or not drink, when we recognize that alcohol can bring cheer and blessing and that it is just one gift, small gift, of so many that God has poured out upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we drink, if we want, to the glory of God. And as we do, we marvel at his love for us in the big things, like the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ for a people who despised their maker. And we marvel at his love for us even in the tiny things too, like fermentation and distillation. And all to the glory of God. Let me pray. 
Good gracious, Heavenly Father, we enter over the next five weeks the tricky and vexed area of social ethics, of knowing how our faith works out in real time and place as your people who want to be different and yet as people who recognize all the gifts that you have poured out for us in this world of yours. Father, will you help us be wise in the way we think about drinking, that our first port of call will always be how do we honor you, how in our actions of drinking or not drinking, do we glorify you? Do we encourage your saints around us? May that drive us. And Father, in a church as large as ours, there will be a whole range of views on this. Give us the grace to live together for your sake with different views, different perspectives, different personal convictions, and yet convictions that all work together to glorify you and love one another. And we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.